welcome to this month's episode of uh, Juicing the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I am one of your hosts, Joshua Tracy. And I am Corwin Hiller. And, uh, yeah, welcome back. Welcome to the show. Uh, we are going to be talking, this is the all 2008 episode of the podcast, as we will be talking about uh, Happy Go Lucky and uh, The Wrestler. Corbin Heller, where would you like to start? Uh, I am wildly indifferent. You know what? No, let's talk about Happy Go Lucky because I've seen it relatively recently. You got it, buddy. Let's do it. All right. Uh, 2008's Happy Go Lucky was written and directed by Mike Lay. Lee, I never know how to pronounce it, I've only seen it written. Uh, it stars Sally Hawkins, Alex Zegerman, and Samuel Rukin. Um, interestingly enough, I would think that um, what's his face would be higher build. What's his fucking name? Hold on. This is killing me. What's his name? Eddie Marson. There it is. Um, anyway, the film had, uh, I don't have a budget, but it was apparently grossed worldwide 18.6 million dollars 18.7 million dollars um the film was nominated for a single oscar it was nominated for um best writing original screenplay for mike lee it also won um or at least was nominated for BAFTA. i thought it was not for a bafta i clearly made that right the fuck up Oh, geez. Oh, Golden Globe. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Sally Hawkins won a Golden Globe for uh, Best Actress in a Motion Picture Comedy or Musical, um, but was not nominated at the Oscars, which I think is a, is a travesty. Um, anyway, it is about a look at a few chapters in life of Poppy, a cheery, colorful North London school teacher whose optimism tends to exasperate those around her. Uh, this was my pick, so I will get us started. I find Mike Lee to be such an interesting writer and director. And I think that this film is such a good example of that because I don't think the film is supposed to imbue you with a sense of sunny optimism. I think instead this film is meant to force you to ask yourself, why you find Poppy grating if you do. Like, I don't think my fiance and I were talking about the movie afterwards, as we do. And she just talked about how they made Poppy very annoying. And that's the thing is, I don't think they made Poppy annoying. I think they made Poppy able to be exactly who she wanted to be. And we're very much so inclined to find that grading by having her be kind of like a loud and sunny person when she wasn't trying to inflict that onto other people necessarily as much as she was trying to just like, it, there's a fearlessness to it is I guess what I'm trying to get at. There's a, there's a real ability to kind of shrug off any level of well, fear and, and concern to live your life the way you truly want to do it. She's unafraid of not having a more stable housing situation by renting. She views her job with the utmost seriousness. She's perfectly content with drinking whenever it is she wants to drink and living with a friend in her thirties and not being married. She chooses to live her life exactly how she chooses to live it without any corruptibility from every, from anybody else. And it, it's not that she's hiding behind a shell or a facade of happiness. It's that she is genuinely living and enjoying her life. And I think there's a jealousy that Mike Lee, the director and writer feels with a character like this. And I think it, it's meant for you to question for yourself, you know, where your emotions lie and how you, you know, choose to brave the world. Obviously, I'm not a very sunny person, 
But I found the character very engaging for that reason. I found, you know, her kind of rubbing up against various aspects of society where it's not so much the norm of being very sunny and very happy and blah, 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 blah. To be really an interesting portrayal of, well, dynamics that you don't tend to typically see. So anyway, Corwin, why don't you tell me what you thought? Um, I find that in order to properly rate this film, I need to separate the message and intent of the actual narrative from Poppy the character in order to allow that narrative to almost speak out what it's trying to say and like what you had said, what you were trying to take from it and how you view it and all of that because I don't care how brave Poppy is for being who she is in spite of the negativity around her or how genuine she is as a person. She is fucking unbearably annoying to the extent where I don't, I, if I was not required to finish this film for the sake of this podcast and for the sake of not getting yelled at by you, I would not be able to sit through it. And I was nearly unable to do so even in spite of that i i don't find it particularly brave the way that character portrayed she can be whoever she wants to be anyone can be whoever they want to be that's never gonna you know stop me from finding certain people annoying and i just it was like nails on a chalkboard for 75% of it until the final breakdown scene when she's around her students. And in that final scene with the driving instructor, she showed, you know, genuine openness and kind of subduing her natural urges to be aloof and uh, over the top. And she was a genuinely relatable and understanding, you know, normal person. But otherwise, it was just like she was a complete caricature of uh, the kind of person she was trying to portray. And I just could not get through it. Yeah, I. that's interesting. I, I didn't find her character to be horribly grating. I don't know what that word means, dude. Do you small words that small children can understand? <laughs> <laughs> I did not find her to be um frustrating okay thank you you said it like three times i didn't want to interrupt you to be like i'm too stupid to know what that is yeah no because because i i think it's easy to agree that she's never in the wrong no and that's i think a big part of it it's it's never like um it's never like like she steps on somebody's foot and the other person's like, fuck you. You stepped on my fucking foot. And she's like, ha, 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 ha. Oh, but why don't you just be happy? You know what I mean? It's never like, all right, this is an inappropriate time to be happy. You know, like you have done something wrong and your joyfulness and sprightliness is actively harming the situation. Instead, oftentimes uh. it is people who bump up against her type of, of lifestyle and inflict themselves and their reflections of themselves upon her. And I think that's a pretty big distinction that the film chooses to take, which is ultimately will, reflected will, in how her story concludes with Eddie Marsan's character. I will say there were points where I was very much on the side of Eddie Marsan's character where it's like, yeah, like you're learning how to drive a car for the first time. Like, you're not even remotely attempting to take it seriously. But that is nitpicking in comparison. No, I would agree. There's definitely there's definitely a few points at which she is certainly lackadaisical behind the wheel, for sure. But I also, I don't... It's, it's tough because there's also points which I agree with her about her lackadaisicalness like, like there's agreement over the shoes mm-hmm. I think she's right and Eddie Marsan's wrong 
but when they I think there was one like where they almost get hit or something or she almost hit something and Eddie Marcin was like you have to fucking pay attention and like he's right she's wrong I think that there is an argument to be had that if you are first learning to drive a car you shouldn't be doing so in platform boots where there is a much greater risk when you're unfamiliar with using the pedals but regardless you know like if a normal person got into a car wearing those boots i would not once think twice about them using like using the pedals with them but i could understand completely why yeah flat-footed shoes when you're first learning how to like touch a pedal and, and hit it at the correct pressure and all of that shit would make much more sense at the same time small small potatoes well no because i actually i thought the shoes were were made kind of a, a, a big point throughout the film the, the shoes her shoes get mentioned several times during the movie so actually, i don't think i don't think it's 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 such a small point i, th- I think it's an important i would say the trait. small point is more the actual safety well right and, uh, that, and that's where i'm going required. that's where i'm going to disagree with you i th- I, th- okay. I think she's right i think that she should be wearing her platform shoes because that is who she is that is how she is going to be driving like we can disagree we can i guess bicker about which one is more or less safe but i think you would agree that it is impractical for her to learn how to drive in footwear that she does not wear it would be more practical for her to learn how the pedals work, the touch, the feel, the pressure, the lack thereof in the footwear that she will actually be wearing uh, 99% of her life rather than the impractical footwear uh, or the more practical footwear that she never wears and makes that practice, that touch, that pressure, blah, 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 more impractical because it's a situation she's never in. I would argue on top of that to play a devil's advocate that you should develop a a basic understanding of how they work at a baseline before adding in those other variables in footwear like when i practice my golf i do so where i am focused sober and just doing whatever i can to get the basics of the swing or the change i'm trying to make down even though I know I'm probably going to be drinking and, and smoking when I'm actually playing the golf because I want that baseline. If I practice all fucked up, I'm not going to get that basic level of understanding down and it's only going to make it harder to implement in the future. Yeah, but that doesn't come to gear. That again comes down to practice. And I bet that when you do your practicing, you practice wearing something that you're comfortable in that you wear frequently, or at least you are. I do. Yeah. Like that's what it comes to. I wouldn't practice in boots. I would practice in golf shoes. I I get what you're saying. Right. Okay. And so I've reached a level of understanding. Yeah. And I think that's what the movie often tries to do is it's like, yeah, I also wouldn't behave how Poppy behaves because I'm not that person. But it's it's that kind of thing where it's like everyone takes issues with different parts of her being because they're and the, I think the most stark one is when she goes to visit her sister and her mm-hmm. sister just like cannot handle who she is. Yeah. But again, it's not because Poppy's done anything. It's because her sister can't look at Poppy and accept that this is who this person actively is her ability to be happy seemingly effortlessly and not have the concerns or the ambitions i guess i should say the same kind of ambitions that uh, she the sister has drives her fucking insane and you know what i think that is the most clear as day representation of the jealousy you did mention because it is very clear that her sister does not believe that she can be happy living that essentially freeing and upbeat lifestyle, whereas she is with a wet blanket of a husband is a very much wet blanket of a person herself. And 
is forcing herself to live this miserable life. Did you uh, did you think that the movie was going to end with um, Poppy and uh, Scott? That's that's the driving instructor's name. Would get we're going to get together at the end? Uh, no. Like in a romantic way, or like them attacking? No, like in a romantic her. way. No, I did not. You didn't think there was going to be a, a a heart melty scene where she finally breaks through his his icy exterior. Uh, I know that's a very cliche thing for the movies to have, and consider me very jaded to that. But I was like, no, she's too annoying, and he's too too curmudgeonly and ugly. Because throughout their interactions, you know, there's so much. There, there's never a a pleasant interaction between the two of them throughout the movie really mm-hmm. there is a it's a lot of yelling and it's it's the most uh it's the largest of all of the reactions to poppy the character and i know it's this is a little bit out of order but their interactions are you know strewn throughout the entire film um but at the end of it like you know i feel like you're so used to the cliche of well, they're going to get together. It's she's a woman. He's mm-hmm. a man. She's happy. He's angry. Opposites attract in these kinds of movies. Yeah, of course, they're going to fuck that when the end of the movie rolls around and you see Poppy really like put her foot down and be like, dude, no, like I'm not continuing this. I'm I'm not happy. Go lucky haha, in a vacuum like I, I'm this is not pleasing me. And I'm no longer defending my lifestyle to somebody else. I now have to actively push you away, you know, to really hammer in the point of I'm not this person to in all circumstances, no matter what. I have the capacity to be uh, I don't want to say serious, but but stern when necessary. And here it is. I thought was a really a great way to kind of wrap up her character. Now it's development because she's this person, the whole movie, essentially, we just don't see the side of it, but to really put that final bow in like the, uh, on the portrait that is who this woman is. I know again, we're jumping around a little bit, but what did you think of the ending? Uh, I thought it was far and away the most real aspect of the film. It felt the most grounded. It felt the most, uh, almost human, uh, in the wake of everything going on right now, it made me think, wow, I'm so glad this happened in England and not here. Cause that kind of outburst and clear mental breakdown would lead to a very different outcome in the United States or so it would seem. Um, but uh, I don't, it, it definitely made me think, and I don't know if it, if I've thought about it enough since I've watched the film to really go through all of the little things that it shows about both characters and both livelihoods as a whole. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little bit full disclosure. I watched this a while ago now from, from when we're actually recording this episode. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a little bit, um, which is also a lot. One of the slight reasons why this is a little bit piecemeal for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it um it's the darkest part of the movie, I think, which is interesting. Because there was also room for the movie to get a lot darker when she had that interaction with that homeless man. Mm-hmm. Which is an odd scene. When she kind of she's like walking, I guess home. It, it relatively unclear, at least again from my now quite removed recollection but walking let's just say home she comes across a homeless man a little bit out of it sitting by himself in this kind of like industrial looking like like look like maybe like behind or to the side of like a factory kind of kind of look to it um when this very odd very tense um nighttime scene what what did you think of their interaction (laughs) 
I'll be honest, I could not get over the fact that like a young petite woman would be having such an interaction with a what seems to be mentally unstable man in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night, no contact. Like just the threat level just was sending off like DEFCON alerts in my head. Um, but it it ended up being a, a very genuine human interaction that kind of showed her desire to connect with people and her desire to kind of work with people and, and kind of spread that cheer and happiness she lives with. And it also kind of foreshadows the way that men who are not accustomed to that kind of person in their day-to-day lives might take it a little differently than someone would someone they would take it a little bit more affectionately than just the jolly interaction um because i i I remember he like went to like brush her cheek and she pulled away and he was like oh my god i'm sorry like i didn't mean to to scare you or frighten you whatever but I think that definitely foreshadows the interaction with Scott later on. It's it, it's interesting because it it's it's like it's it's the most um oh shit what's the word I'm trying to think of oh fuck I had it in my head and now it's gone shit 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 yellow no it's a word not a color damn it uh, uh, yellow's a word yeah but it's mostly a color. Fuck me. Oh, damn it. I can't think of it. Son of a bitch. Well, that really synonyms. Just, it just negates my 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 point. If I can't think of what it is, I can't think of synonyms. Ah, uh, pass. <laughs> <laughs> pass. Pass. Yeah, fuck. Oh, I had something to say, too, but it really hinges upon me remembering this one fucking word. <laughs> and I just can't do it. I just can't. Show me dragon. Oh, great episode. Um, it's always sunny. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Pass. Oh, I'm thinking of two different contexts. Pass is Charlie McDennis. Yes. Yeah, you're right. Charlie, right? Yeah. you clearly wrote this card. You were the only illiterate. I don't think group. I did. <laughs> Oh, I wrote yeah, bastard, man. yeah. You're oh, right. Oh, yeah, I wrote this one. Right. Yeah, yeah. I remember it now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, yeah, and it really the film just to kind of put a bow on this conversation. The the film really is just kind of a chapter. You don't really come in at the beginning of anything, and you don't really go out at the end of anything. Obviously, it's it's the end of her her driving lessons but it's you know she's kind of like been on what like two dates with the the guy that she had met the social worker that she had met and you know they hadn't really like gone very far into it it's not like it ended on some big romantic moment between the two of them and it didn't come in on anything harrowing it really if you're looking at films classified as slice of life i really am hard-pressed to think of more of a slice of life movie than this it really doesn't have any big dramatic bookends to it. It very much so is a chapter in this woman's life, which I think does also lend itself well to the, um, the message of the film, which is that she's not transformative. She's not changing as the film change, as the film goes on. There is no growth within Poppy. She has already determined she is more emotionally um, intelligent than everyone else in the movie. And she is extremely self-aware. And you're just along for the ride of seeing how other people have to grapple with that. And it really, I I think, to that end is very effective. I, I don't disagree. I think it was an extremely effective film. It's a very effective story that they're telling, and it's told surprisingly very effectively. I just cannot get over 
Poppy as as a human being and just having to sit through two hours of 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 a positivity and aloofness that the combination of which would drive me insane if it were a real person. And that's Corwin, baby. Uh, oh, uh, start before we move on. Star star rating. I'm giving uh, I'm giving this a four out of five. I liked it a lot. It's a four out of five for me. Uh, I'm giving it a three out of five. There we go. All right, let's let's take this into our other 2008 movie, The Wrestler, which was uh, written by Robert Siegel, directed by Darren Aronofsky. This film uh, stars Mickey Rourke. Marissa Tomei and Evan Rachel Wood. This film had an estimated budget of oh fuck, I can't find it. Um shit. There it is. Six million dollars and a cumulative worldwide gross of forty four point seven million dollars. So a big old success at the box office in respect to its budget. Uh the film, oh tagline. I don't think I did the tagline for the last movie either. Uh the tagline for this is love, pain, glory. Cool. Sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm with it. Nice. That's very fitting of 1980s uh, pro wrestling. Uh, the film was nominated for two Oscars, both for acting. It was nominated for Best Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role for Mickey Rourke and Best Performance by an Actress in a Leading Role for Marissa Tomei. Uh, the film is about a faded professional wrestler must retire, but finds his quest for a new life outside of the ring, a dispiriting struggle. Corwin Heller, this was your pick. You can get us started. Oh, boy. Uh, have I ever told you how much I hate having to be the one that opens movies? Because I am so bad at it. Um, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I thought this was uh, a really heartfelt film. Uh, I really loved uh, Mickey Rooney in it. I thought his character was Mickey, <laughs> Mickey Rourke, not Mickey, Mickey Rourke. Rooney. Mickey Rooney, very, very different. different. Yes, he was. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Um, although I would love to see Mickey Rooney try and just be superimposed on this. What do you mean um, I got to retire, Doc? <laughs> um. Oh, he died. Okay, never mind. Oh, he's yeah, he's uh, super dead. He was a child <laughs> actor back in like the 30s. He's super dead. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not too long ago. Um 90 years. Eh, whatever. Um I thought it was a very heartfelt story. I thought it was a very heartfelt character. I could not imagine I would feel myself connecting to the type of character that was portrayed. Uh, I don't watch wrestling uh, of this kind. I do watch, you know, college wrestling. That's very different. But at the same time, this was, this was, it wasn't a tearjerker, but it pulled at the heartstrings. I was rooting for him the whole time. And I love the way it was shot. It felt incredibly personal. Um, you know, I'm running out of random things to talk about because I saw this like three weeks ago, but. Uh, Josh, take over. <laughs> yeah, this is this is some really touching acting, and I love the way Aronofsky shot it because you know it it's shot like mockumentary style in mm-hmm. in the camera work and the cinematography of it. It's not super clean. It looks like it's done on a budget with all with handheld. The, yeah, it's all handheld. I want to say I'm going to look. This has to have been done on film. Because it has that kind of like grainy quality, or maybe like a low end yeah. um, uh, digital recorder. Because it's not like it's not very pretty in how it's shot, which I, I it is effective to what it's trying to accomplish. Like if we're if you're going to make a movie about like a lesser known guy, um, an Arflex four sixteen. I have no idea what that is. Thirty. All right, thirty five millimeter. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, then, you you know, you're probably not getting a big budget. It's probably going to be small time. And I think it works to that effect. In addition to, you know, it feeling a little bit more intimate as a result of that, and blah, blah, blah. It shouldn't be a beautiful film, or at least, you know, this big, you know, vast master shots of like the sunset over, you know, whatever it may be. 
this isn't a lifestyle they're trying to glorify. It should be grimy and dark and dirty and just something you watch and say, man, I, I would hate to be in that spot. That is not a life you want to live. And to that effect, I think the casting was phenomenal. Not only obviously did Mickey Rourke and Marissa Tomei do a, a great job in this movie, but they're also from the same geographic location. And then they shot the film in that area. So the fact that these, you know, this is a New Jersey movie, both these Jersey actors, movie. gotta love it. When they were walking on the, uh, the Asbury Park boardwalk, I was like, I fucking there all the time, bitch. Um, but, uh, you know, the fact that they had two people who very much so sound like, you know, Jersey, New York people makes that more effective because it's not like, oh, no, that doesn't sound quite right. You know, what I mean, like there's there's points at which you can go like, oh, you're you're trying real hard and it's not it's not going very well. Hmm. And in a movie that's really lending itself to a feeling of authenticity, I think having those voices be there and and be true really meant a lot for putting yourself in that situation. Like if you're watching a movie like a World War II movie and they've got German um, soldiers speaking with like British accents, honestly, who fucking cares as an American? Like I'm just registering that as foreign accent. Don't give a shit. They're foreign. Got it. But when you're watching a movie like this, it's like, Oh man, like I just, like I just watched, um, I just watched a movie yesterday from the 40s because uh, I just finished reading a book from the 40s. It was just supposed to take place in Mississippi. And the main character had a very Atlantic accent. And I'm like, ah, yes, the classic Mississippi Atlantic accent. <laughs> uh, Genghis Khan, the uh, fuck. I almost just called him Wayne Brady. Holy <laughs> shit. John Wayne in the flesh and blood. John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> um. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, granted, that's, that's super extreme. But like, yeah, like every time I looked at this man in this movie talk and be like, oh, dude, this movie is so about the South and you are so not Southern. Like it really detracted from the message of the film, the, the, the film I had watched, it, Intruder in the Dust. It's a good book. It was not a good movie. Um, it's about the South. And so to have that character not be Southern was difficult for the full point of the film to be made. The fact that these characters really did have those voices, I think helped a lot with the movie. Um, I don't think the story is the best written. I think there's some, there's some, I don't know, detractions to it. Well, I don't know about you, but man, the daughter character and storyline was bad yeah it was it was not well done i get that they had to give him like something else to like a fallout for like hey you're giving something up in order to keep going down this path there's something else you need to work for but yeah that's her character was also their energy was just so weird. Like when they, when they do go down, you know, to Asbury park and walk around the boardwalk um, and then break into, it's so funny because the, um, the uh, event space that they break into that was all boarded up is actually perfectly functioning now. Like they restored it. They do art installations in there. It's actually really nice. It's so funny. If you're from Jersey, this is very funny because that is a part of Asbury park that in 2008 sucked and today is very expensive. So like seeing them walk down a desolate Asbury park, even in the winter, even in the winter and have to break into what is now like a kind of a nice space was pretty fucking funny. Um, but anyway, when they broke into that building Wait. and then started that really awkward dance. Oh my God. That was way too sexual. This was released one year before the Jersey Shore was released. Really? This movie inspired Schnooky. We can only assume. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No, like like when they had that dance in that like event space, it was fucking weird. 
it was really awkward and mm-hmm. weird. It felt like whoever wrote this has never had a child and was like, I'm just going to write the line for uh, another lady. And then, oh, yeah, she's his daughter. Yeah, it it was one instance where I was like, is he asking her on a date? Are they going to fuck? That's his daughter, right? Like, that was very clear. it, It had the energy for it. And then same thing, like with the the getting of the 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 sweatshirt or the the jacket from the store is it's like, okay, yeah, like I, I, I get it. it. It's, it's not really landing though. I, I kind of liked it. Like he couldn't stop himself from being him. You know, like there was the smart choice and there was the nineteen eighties wrestler choice, and he had to get both. No, no, I meant I, I, like I meant the fact that that was even. That it worked like so you're telling me that you're so disconnected from your daughter and her life that you're not confident, you know, when her birthday is you've missed almost all of them seemingly and have been completely out of touch with her while living in the same very small state as her. But a peacoat is going to do a lot of repair work here. It's just like uh, understanding the stakes was so hard. I I think at that point, I kind of could just accept it as she's clearly very desperate to have that father figure back in her life. Like she was so just mentally attached to the idea of having him back in her life that, yeah, probably any gift that he could have gotten her would have been the world to her. But, th- but this is what was confusing because she had spent apparently so much time without him in her life. I don't know why it would mean so much if I think the film would have been better off if he was constantly in and out like more frequently than the film suggests that they are. And that this was but he had been like a piece of shit. You know what I mean? It seemed like they hadn't seen each other since she was like nine and here she is at a very confusing to understand how old she is age, but let's say early mid twenties. So like, again, the vast majority of her life without him in it, it'd be, it would make more sense for him to have been around more, but just constantly drunk, constantly like high, constantly skipping out, but always showing up a day late and a dollar short where these tokens and gifts might mean more. But if like my estranged father, who I haven't seen in 15 to 17 years, all of a sudden showed up with a pea coat and a, and a, and a dream, I'd probably just tell him to go fuck himself. Cause I'm doing just fine living with my girlfriend and our very confusing agents. I think as two people who grew up in very nuclear households, we can't really argue what someone who has grown up without a father figure would react to having him try and come back into our lives. I just don't think we are the people who could be like, no, that's she is wrong for acting that way. That doesn't make any sense. I don't think we know what the fuck we're talking about in that regard. Corwin, you have brought this up several times before. We're never going to know what we're talking about with these movies because we don't have lives like any movie we've ever watched. Exactly. If that's your argument, we should never talk about a movie ever again unless it's based on our lives. Fine. We're going to watch Batman next. Why are you one of the dicks getting punched in the face? Vengeance. Oh, anyway, um, enough harping on that part, though. It's it's an interesting story. It's it's it simultaneous. You know, age and aging is is a really big part of what they're trying to say, not just for uh, Mickey Rourke's character of the Ram, but also for Marissa's Tomei's character, who really manages to serve as a wonderful counterpart to the emotional um, underpinning of Mickey Rourke's uh, storyline. Both of them show, you know, two different sides of 
having to age and having to accept big changes to their physical being as well as how that affects their careers. What would you think of Marissa Tomei and her character and performance? Boobs, dude. Boobs. Um, but she seemed like the exact kind of person he needed in his life. Someone who is real. Someone who's gone through hard times while also maintaining a normal, regular person lifestyle. Doesn't really give a shit about the wrestling is caring about him, the person, not him, the wrestler, and is very willing to be there to support him for him and not kind of feed into the, uh, what's the word, the the theater of his life. Plus, it's fucking Marissa Tomei. How could you not? How, how did you take a question about Marissa Tomei and her character? And to make the answer about Mickey Rourke and his character, tell me about Marissa Tomei's character. uh, I I thought it was about Marissa Tomei. (laughs) I asked you about a woman and you're like, here's how it ties back to the man. I mansplained it. Yeah. What are you going to do about it? I asked you what you thought about this very interesting and colorful portrayal of a middle aged woman. And you said, well, she supported her man very well. Dude, that was a wild answer. Touche. Touche. Because <laughs> uh, it's interesting, you know, Mickey Rourke's body is betraying him in a very visceral way. You know, he had a heart attack. And if he continues doing his wrestling, which is not just a high intensity, um, like vascular thing to have to do, like a cardio or, you know, cardiovascular thing to have to do but also very brutal on the joints and and high stress and you know he literally hurts himself intentionally to make it a better show um so you 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 get a very visual very you know like tactile kind of experience looking at what mcrourke has to go through but marissa tomei is going through very much so the same thing just not as life and death stakes of it her body is also betraying her ability to continue the only life she's ever known. She's been a stripper, theoretically, from what we can understand from the movie, her whole adult working life. And now she's no longer desirable because her body shows signs of age as any body would after being on Earth for more than, you know, fucking 30 years or whatever. Um, I think she's like 40 in this movie and she looks amazing. But anyway. And she has to kind of grapple with a a similar, again, lower stakes thing where it's like my body has always been how I made my money, supported myself and supported my child. And now it cannot do that for me anymore. And I don't know who I am without that. And it's so interesting to see them, you know, kind of get together because that's how they're able to support each other by both understanding not directly, there's no conversation about it. There's no formalized understanding of each other's situation, but there's very much so an inherent, you know, like acknowledgement, you know, this a subliminal kind of thing happening where it's like, we are both the older crowd now, you know, like we, we share a lot of the same memories that are now in equitable distance from the present um, as to each other. So it, it's, it's very interesting um, seeing it play out in, in the feminine world as well as the masculine world simultaneously. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I agree. Ooh. I had a question, but I want to save it for the end. Ooh, okay. <laughs> and, you know, it's tough because I feel like with a lot of movies like this, you're supposed to be like, oh, Mickey Rourke, you fucking idiot. Don't go do the wrestle show. You're going to die, you big stupid. Um, but in this, like, the film does such a good job of showing you his perspective on why it really does feel like it's the only option. And why it, it matters. Like, yeah. why this really does matter. This isn't just 
a fucking charade he likes to put on. This isn't, you know, a game he likes to play. Like, this is who he is. And it's the only life he knows. And, you know, it's funny. We just talked about um, they shoot horses, don't they? On I think the last episode. Do they? And that film ends with Jane Fonda, like, committing assisted suicide, essentially, with the idea being, like, if, if I what's the point of living if it's going to be fucking hell, you know, and it's a very similar kind of point being made here at the end of this movie, which is Mickey Rourke tries to make it work with the parts of his life that aren't wrestling. And they keep failing because of either him or the people around him. You know, he keeps fucking up unintentionally, but keeps fucking up his relationship with his daughter. And he cannot cope with, how people treat him outside of the wrestling ring in a more quote unquote normal business, like working at a grocery store. And so to him, it feels like a very similar thing, which is if I can't, what's the point in living? If it's going to be awful, if I can't be happy and survive. And so you know, it, it, it does such a really good job of bringing you to that point with, you know, the final wrestling scene. Um, non sequitur, but uh, one of my favorite pieces of trivia is that Mickey Rourke actually worked in that grocery store that day while they were filming that and was just that's how he dealt with random ass customers, throwing them passes and just fucking with their shit. Not See, 100% of it, but a good chunk of him actually dealing with all those random people. That's just so funny because it's not like Mickey Rourke is like like a Jason Sudeikis who kind of has like generic white man face, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I took a passing glance around a room, I would notice a Jason Sudeikis. How do you not look Mickey Rourke in the fucking grill and be like, dude, what are you doing here? You are one of the most I've, easily recognizable people on the planet. No one looks like you. I'll tell you what, though, I don't know if the guy working the deli counter at ShopRite is someone I would like look at intently enough to be able to be like, <laughs> you don't look the working class in the eye. F- yeah. <laughs> oh God. No, I barely even speak to them. I write it on a piece of paper and pass it over the counter. <laughs> Corwin Heller, um, so far in this half of the podcast thinks women are just there to support their men <laughs> and does not look the working class person in the eye. Corwin, you are the bourgeoisie. Ah, uh, down the- <laughs> <laughs> oh Jesus! Um, but yeah, and you made a golf uh, comparison. Oh, Corwin! You're oh on the ropes. God, I am elite. I am one of the elites. <sighs> what was the question you're going to ask about the end? Because we're we're kind of there, I guess. Yeah. Um, do you what do you think? Do you think they kill Tony at the end of the the scene? Sorry, wrong cliffhanger. Does he die in the ring? Um, that was a joke I thought of earlier and fucked up the delivery on so bad. I think probably is what I'll say. I've always took it to be a death. What about you? Mm-hmm. I I think so. Honestly, I think that's the happy ending, though. Much like <sighs> they shoot horses, don't they? Like, I do think that is the happier ending. Whether that is the final ending or there were more scenes that could have been included. That's how this ends. There's no other way for this to end. Yeah. I I think if the movie was to continue, like if he survived that ordeal, the next ending of the movie would be him killing himself on a bender or something like that. Like, I don't think he survives within a year of this. Should he live through the events of the end of the movie? By design, like, like again, yeah. he took some time, not a lot, but whatever, to see what life was like not being a pro wrestler, and it wasn't for him. He could not make it work to where he felt mm-hmm. as though he could be happy and comfortable in his life. Yeah, I mean, you don't shove your hand into a meat slicer without really struggling with the reality of your situation. Yeah, I know it. It is dark and weighty. 
That's for sure. And obviously we're not sitting here like rooting for his imminent demise or anything like that, but it, it is, you know, there is something to be said about, about kind of fucking it all up or having it not work out or, or miss it, losing your place in life. That's what it really is. Losing your place mm-hmm. in life. He had a place. He had a good place. We understood that there were some very high highs in there and it just evaporated. Yeah, that's tough. It is. Final uh, rating. Um, I'm going to go four again. I'm going to go with another four out of five on this one for me. I, 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 I think there's some eh, writing and scenes in there. Uh, from a, from a screenplay perspective, uh, which is probably why the only nominations this movie got was for acting. But by and large, this is still a really good movie. The acting is so good, though. Like, it's held up by its acting, but that acting is so fucking good um, mm-hmm. that it really it really is just so fucking well done. Who did uh, who was the Oscar winner for this year? 2008. In 08, I can check that for you in a second. What's uh, what what's your final star rating on this on this bad boy, right here? I don't think that it is a perfect film. Sean Penn won for Milk for lead lead role. Uh, Touche. That's a pretty good one, but still. Penelope Cruz won for um, Vicky Cristina Barcelona for supporting role. Ugh. Uh, regardless, um, I, I don't think it's a perfect film, but I I think it has that X factor for me. I'm going to give it a four and a half. I'm with you. Right on. All right. All right. That brings us to next week's picks. Corbin, what you got? Uh, I am going to go with a Philip Seymour Hoffman film, Capote. Oh, my God. I haven't seen the movie in forever. All right. Truman Capote. The 2000 film Capote. Please pick the Truman show so we could do the Truman Capote show. No, I will not. I'm going to pick the 2015 Yorgos Lanthimos instant classic, (laughs) The Lobster. I have actually seen this one before. And I will say it now, I didn't really get it the first time, so I'm kind of excited to see it again. Can't wait. All cool. right, cool. So, 2005's Capote, 2015's The Lobster. Check them out before next episode, or don't. It's your life, not ours. Um, if you'd like to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Juicy Pot. If you'd like to follow Corbin on Twitter, you can do so at Corbin Heller. If you'd like to follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. If you'd like to send emails to the show, you can do so at uh, screen at gmail.com. And until next time, y'all have a good one. Bye.